0: As we go through the book of Daniel, Uh, the first six chapters that we're looking at is very much in narrative. A lot of the Bible is written in narrative, a lot of it is in first-person narrative as well, where the person experiencing is actually writing it. There's a few really great uh, storytelling techniques. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed. So One of the storytelling techniques that you find sometimes in movies is where they begin at the end, and then they kind of fill it in part way through the movie and then they tell you the rest. One of my favorite examples of this is, and I am correct, just okay, I'm correct. The best Disney animated movie ever is this one, alright? Emperor's New Groove. alright? You are wrong if you think anything else. And it starts with Cusco, the main character, the emperor, he's been turned into a llama and he's crying in the rain and then they fill in the rest of the story. I got roasted mercilessly by people, because I just watched this a couple weeks ago. Um, And so it starts at the end and fills in the rest. That's one storytelling technique. Another one that's uh, commonly used is where you get two characters that are on a similar uh, path. And these characters are both faced with the same choice or similar choice. One chooses well and you see their story arc. The other chooses poorly and you see their story arc. And sometimes these stories these characters never come together again. You see uh, what happens well in a character who chooses well, you see what happens awful in a character who doesn't choose well. And sometimes in these stories, these arcs come back together, and the person who chooses well actually has an opportunity to redeem or uh, you know, rescue this person who's been wandering this way. One of the, the classic illustrations of that, in, in at least in, in my movie going, is the original Star Wars trilogy. So we have uh, Luke Skywalker here and Darth Vader, who's named Anakin, and it's his father. Both of them are faced with a choice to use the gifts they've been given for good or for evil. Darth Vader, Luke's father, chooses for evil and goes on a, on a big path. And in that movie, that's Return of the Jedi, and it's like the third one. And they're on a catwalk, and they're in this battle. And Luke is ant, And he, he gets the upper hand. He's able to disarm his father and he has a chance to defeat him once and for all. The the biggest villain in the whole universe, the one who's done so much harm to his friends and others, he has a chance to to annihilate by getting into anger and rage and all these things. And in that moment he looks down on his father and instead of seeing the villain he's become, he sees the wounded man he was who made a bad choice. And Luke faced with the exact same decision in that moment to become who he's defeated, tosses his lightsaber way, and through that redeems his father. But it's such a great uh, story, and, and we get caught up into narratives, and this morning in the book of Daniel, chapter four, it's one of those chapters that most people, uh, just you you know, you you may uh, be familiar with Daniel, you may not, but even if you're familiar with Daniel, you may not know what chapter 4. Both of these storytelling techniques are used, not because it's fictional, but because in writing, the Bible is written in all sorts of literary styles. Styles of the day and age, styles that are common to humanity. It's written by people under the influence of the Holy Spirit. under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I should say. And sometimes it's in narrative form. And The cool thing about chapter four is this. This is one of the rare times in all the Bible where it's not written by one of God's people. It's not written by a Jew. This particular chapter isn't even written necessarily by Daniel, although he transcribed it and included it. It's written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And in this, King Nebuchadnezzar sends out a decree to all the world, the most powerful king at that time of history, sends out a decree to all of the world. And he begins his decree at the end. And what we'll discover is that both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter are faced with a common choice. A common choice, the same choice. And we'll see how that works out. We have to look kind of backwards and forwards to figure that out. But if you have your Bibles with you, uh, or you can look on the screen. Again, I'm going to encourage you this again again. Bring your Bible with you. Doesn't matter if it's an app or in paper because you can read through some of the stuff that I'm not going to get into. I don't imagine any of us want us me to read directly through the whole chapter. So what I'm going to do is read the parts together that are written in Nebuchadnezzar's own perspective. It's written by him. And fill in the rest so that we understand the narrative. So this is what his Eden said, first one, chapter four. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders that Most High God has performed for you. How great are His signs. How powerful His wonders. His kingdom will last forever. His rule for all generations. Now, you might read that and think, yeah, that's part of the Bible. sounds pretty good. I've heard that in Psalms and things like that. But if you've been with us and you know who this guy was, is this the same guy? How is King Nebuchadnezzar, king over Babylon, Writing this. So just rewind a little bit. Chapter 1. Most powerful king, viewed as a god in his society, conquers Israel. Actually, it's Judah, the southern kingdom. They have disobeyed God. God turns them over to captivity so that in that discipline they might finally turn their heart back to God. And he takes away the southern kingdom. He destroys Jerusalem. He completely conquers them. And God grants him victory. He doesn't know God grants him victory, but God does. And he brings Judah away, and God's people, he doesn't just put in slavery, he tries to assimilate them, and, and totally annihilate their sense of identity in God, and get them to be Babylonian, and increase his kingdom in way. And so he picks some young rulers, Daniel is one of them, he tries to assimilate them, make them Babylonian, and Daniel takes a stand, and he's blessed because of it, because of the way he does that. Chapter 2, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has this horrible dream, and God gives him, speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar in the dream. God is reaching out to him. And King Nebuchadnezzar gets all those astrologers and fortune tellers and magicians and witch doctors and all that kind of stuff. Whatever term you want to place on these guys, it's not a good group of guys. None of them could tell him the dream. None of them could interpret Upset, Upstep Stanley, who is in training to be in this group as part of the assimilation process. And God grants him knowledge of the dream. God grants him the interpretation. And King Nebuchadnezzar uh, raises Daniel up to be head over all these people in the capital. In fact, he promotes three of his friends who have been here as well, sends them off to another province, and makes them officials as well. They're not even done their training perfect. So get this King Nebuchadnezzar, in charge, he thinks he's God, he does all these great things. He acknowledges God at the end of chapter 2 and puts captives over top of his people. So, but he at least acknowledges God. Chapter 3, we have Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, if you're familiar with that narrative, where these three take a stand. You see, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had included an image of a big statue. And the top of the statue was gold and a head, and the interpretation of the dream was that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was this great kingdom. Another kingdom would come behind it, and finally God's kingdom would come and be greater than all. What's the point of that dream? Kingdom, its greatest. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar took from that? I'm a great kingdom. So he made himself an idol, 90 feet tall of gold, and had everyone worship it. He totally missed the point of God reaching out. By the end of chapter three, because God rescues these three friends from the execution that Nebuchadnezzar had planned for them, Nebuchadnezzar has moved a little bit further. So, end of chapter two, he's acknowledging there is a God. End of chapter three. He says, not only is there a most high God, but anyone who persecutes these people will be put to death. I give permission and protection to worship that God. I'm not going to do it myself, but there is this great most high God that the, the, the yeah. Hebrews worship, and they can do it with my blessing. And then we come on chapter 4, where it says, peace and prosperity to this most high God. How did we get there? How do we go from, I'm going to protect you, whatever's good for you is good for you, I'm going to give you my thing over here, to an edict to the whole known world at the time. How on earth did we get there? Well, he, he sends this out, and in his own words he tells us, so if you flip forward to verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. When you are in comfort and prosperity, you may not necessarily be in the blessing of God. Be careful you don't forget God in that moment. There's all sorts of illustrations in the Bible where God takes comfort and prosperity and says, you are making yourself God above me. I'm going to do something about that. But one night, verse 5, I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. We're going to come back to that frightened and terrified thing. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And so what he does is he he calls together all the wise men again. And this time, instead of demanding that they tell him the dream, he gives them the dream, tells them the dream. None of these wise men can interpret. And then he finally calls on Daniel. I don't know why he didn't call Daniel first. Maybe he was doing some other things. do you know, finally calls on Daniel, who's headed all of them. He says, I, I know that Daniel can tell me this, because he has the spirit of the gods. In. So Nebuchadnezzar still gave his language, his religious background. He knows that the spirit of God is in him, working, but he, in his language, it's spirit of the God. So he asked Daniel, I know there's something different and unique about you. Interpret the dream forward. And so he called Daniel in. And here was his dream. Here's his dream. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed, verse 10. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall. Remember, this is his own words. He's telling this here to us. Reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves. It was loaded with fruit for all to eat. While the animals lived in its shade, birds nested in its branches, all the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, an angel. The messenger shouted, Cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. But the stump and the roots in the ground, are bound with band of iron and bronze, and surrounded by tender grass, now let them him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of the wild animals instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones. So, why? Why does he have this dream? It's right in what Nebuchadnezzar says. So that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest people. And so we have this, uh, this storyline of a king and a captain. And the king in his prosperity and comfort has given this dream. And he's terrified and he's frightened. We'll get to the interpretation in a moment, but it's really important that we notice what Nebuchadnezzar says next. He doesn't jump on into the interpretation, he actually gives us Daniel's response. Verse 19. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, so even Nebuchadnezzar, Is acknowledging, his name's Daniel, it points to God. I gave him the Babylonian name, Belshazzar, because I want him to serve my gods. Was overcome for a time. With what? Fear. He was frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said, to Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Both king and captive experienced fear over the same dream. Now the king, I think, was worried for himself. What does this mean? Probably nothing more. Or what does it mean for my kingdom? Daniel was worried and afraid on a couple of different he First of all, what it meant for the king and the kingdom, but also for himself. It seems that Daniel had the interpretation of the dream right away. And maybe you did too, as we read it through. You can kind of piece together. But nobody could figure this out. And so Daniel has the interpretation of the dream. But in order to really understand what God is doing in the lives of these two men, and the lives of this kingdom, we have to debunk something. There is this phrase that swirled around in the church, I don't know where it began, I've heard it lots of times, I've believed it for a time. This particular chapter in the book of Daniel, actually flying the face of it, it's this, God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody hear that? We heard that before. God will never give you more than you can handle. Wrong. Wrong. I wish that was true. That would be so wonderful. In fact, before Daniel gives the interpretation, he says, hey, I wish that this was for your enemies and not for you because it's a pretty terrible thing that God is doing. And while Nebuchadnezzar is in his prosperity and comfort, God does something. We see that in Israel. Right? Uh, The Egyptians, the Pharaoh is against God and God's people. He won't let them go. And so God makes it tough so that they will bend their knee. They believe they're God. They're in control over everything Pharaoh does. And so God makes things difficult for him and his people so that they might look up to him. The Israelites so that Judah, the southern kingdom happened in the northern kingdom as well through the, the nation and the kingdom of Assyria. This with the southern kingdom was through the nation of Babylon where God permitted them to be conquered and more and carried away. What kind of good God does that? So Daniel is taken away and he's out of his home and he is given blessing and all sorts of stuff if he would just bend his knee to the request of the king. And so we have this mess. The king in his prosperity and comfort. known ruler of the world but the known world at that time. And God wants his heart. And God loves him so much he's willing to Make him go through something terrible. Here's what Daniel says is the interpretation to the dream. Daniel says, "Over great king, like I wish this was for your enemies, not you. You're the tree. Okay, you're the tree. You provide, you know, food for the the world. Basically, you bring the peoples of the world under you. They take shade. You know, you're great. Your kingdom stretches to the sky. But because of that, you'll be cut off. You'll be brought low." and you're going to lose your sanity and lose your mind, for seven years you're going to live as a wild animal. And there's psychological um, uh, disorders that are like that. People think they're animals and live like that for a time. Uh, so you're going to live like an animal for seven years. Your hair's going to get so wild it'll be like eagle's feathers. you have wild hair, your fingernails, and toenails will grow and be like talons, and you'll eat the grass and live far away from society in the wild. But after a time, you will be restored. Because the stuff that's cut off, God will protect that with a band of iron and bronze. He'll carefully and with strength protect your kingdom and your position. And you will be restored once more. An the underlying theme is that after that time, your heart will be so broken. Your life is brought so low that you will look up to God. And once you do, God loves us so much He's not afraid to do whatever it takes that we might follow him because it's better it's just better so Daniel says in verse 27 King Nebuchadnezzar he finishes his interpretation and he says this King Nebuchadnezzar please accept my advice so here's the interpretation accept what I'm going to tell you right now it's really important stop sinning do what's right break from your wicked past, and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will prosper. In other words, hey, if you listen to this thing, you might not have to go through. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Of course he didn't listen. (laughs) He's he's moved a little bit further. He acknowledges God. He gets permission for them in the past chapter to worship this guy. He has this dream. He has a clear interpretation, but he doesn't listen. A year later, a full year later, he's totally forgotten all this. He's walking around on the roof of his palace. In Scripture in the Old Testament, when you find a king walking around the roof of his palace, it's usually a bad thing. David's walking around the roof of his palace, feeling he's really great. He should be out leading his people in defense of their nation, from raiding armies. And he sins greatly, and his life is brought down. This king is walking out, and he's looking over the kingdom of Babylon i eye group. It's probably on some sort of mountaintop or something he can view everything. And he's marveling at how great he is. Look at what I've built. My strength, my might, and my wisdom. Most of you are not going to be able to stand on a roof and look over the kingdom of your life and say what a great life I've built for yourself. But we do this, don't we? When well, we're in a good season, man, I've done so well at work. I've done so good at school. My family's in such good. I'm such a good person. We we usually come in and out of Like, I don't like myself. I need to improve. And I'm doing pretty well. And he's walking around. And this is in uh, a third-person narrative. And Nebuchadnezzar, in this edict, moves back and forth between first-person and telling the story of it from kind of the outside. And in verse 30, he says this. As he, Nebuchadnezzar, looked out across the city he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Not a good thing to, to say, whether out loud or, or in your heart. And he knew what he said, because he's writing this. And in that same moment, same moment, a voice from heaven said, All the things predicted, all the things prophesied through that dream. They're going to come true in that very hour, that very hour. He lost his mind. He was driven from society. He lived for seven years eating the grass and having the dew drench out in the wild, away from society. His hair grew long, his fingernails grew long. But after seven years, here's what he said happened. After this time, verse 34, after this time had passed, the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, to be clear, as elements to the whole world, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. So he bowed his knee to God, finally. My sanity returned in that moment. I praised and worshipped the Most High and I honoured the one who lives forever. His rule, not mine, is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal, not mine. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. Listen to this phrase. This is phenomenal. No one can stop him or say, what do you mean by doing these things? Nebuchadnezzar did not shake his fist at God and say, why have you done this terrible thing to me? He said, no one can do that. No one should stand and God say, what do you mean by doing these things in my life? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor." glory in my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles, they came and sought me out. I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. End of chapter three and beginning of chapter four, there's at least eight years. There's at least an eight-year cap where in that time, Nebuchadnezzar went from hearing this thing and going, eh, <laughs> Great interpretation of your dream, I think I will believe a different one, Daniel. I've created a great kingdom. Being brought completely low so that he might love it. What's the difference? Both men, King and Captain, faced fear, both of them. They hit this choice of fear. What's the difference? Humility. Humility. Daniel had the humility to understand who he was and who God was. Daniel had the humility to know he couldn't do any of these things on couldn't interpret dreams, he couldn't save his life. He just knew to follow he was humble enough to do that nebuchadnezzar into pride it's my kingdom my life my control i am the god of my own destiny and the god of my own kingdom my life and it's interesting that we have this contrast in the face of fear because when we face fear often it strips bare all the things we put forward others, all, all, all the ways we um, try and behave in a different way, the image of ourselves that we put to others. When we face fear and we're afraid, often that gets kind of stripped away because we're afraid. In, in those moments, often the true character of our heart is revealed. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar had pride, and Daniel, he had humility. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low. He was humbled to look up. Daniel looked up because he already already humbled himself. We can see that. You look through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Daniel had already humbled himself. Just think about what these men were going through. And Daniel had this that's my own pride, looking at the battery meter and thinking, I had enough. We've got enough. We don't need to to swap the batteries. Um, So they've got this arc, and they have this choice. And Daniel chooses humility, and and Nebuchadnezzar chooses pride. So what should we learn from this? Choose humility when you're faced with fear. Choose humility when we are faced with fear. Now, we could stop there. That's a great lesson. We all need that. But there's a few things deeper than that, because the reality is if you're going through something where God is bringing you low, that's a, that's a great time of confusion. And we have this mess. It's not like both of them, it's, it's cut and dry, black and white, of, you know Daniel has all good things because he follows God, and Nebuchadnezzar has all bad things because he doesn't. It's a little messier than that. Daniel serves God throughout, but look at the like to look from the outside of Daniel's life, it doesn't seem very good, does it? He's living in his own nation, he's captured, he's brought away, forced to do things against his will. He is blessed, he's given things, but at every moment he's blessed, the next moment he's faced with a death sentence. Because of something he didn't do, not very fair, is it? And then, you know, his friends are faced with things, and then he's terrified at this because it, he doesn't necessarily want to say the interpretation to this dream. So on the, on the surface, Dan's life doesn't seem very good. But underneath, it's satisfying. He's got blessing. Blessing more than just being promoted on oh, two good positions. The blessing is deeper than that. Nebuchadnezzar can do anything he wants. He's the king of the known world. He's in prosperity. He's in comfort. And it's in that moment that God comes to him and pulls him out of that by bringing him love. The very last verse of Daniel chapter 4 is really important. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. What? That's why we have that in verse 1, don't we? Because at the very end, Nebuchadnezzar says, God is great, he can humble the proud. That's why I serve this God. What a a life transformation. So they both end up with faith in God that overcomes fear. So here, to have faith in God that overcomes fear, humble, choose it, choose yourself. Humble yourself to God by worshiping and trusting Him. Now in chapter 2, we find David worshiping God. And in chapter 1 and 2 and here, he trusts God, he has faith in God. And here in this chapter alone, we find that Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing. There's a verse in in Psalm, uh, Psalm 56, two verses that are incredibly encouraging for us. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Trust. When I am afraid, what? Trust. Trust requires humility. Faith, another word for God, uh, another word for trust. Faith in God, trusting God requires humility. We can't trust God and be proud. Now, pride, pride takes on different forms, doesn't it? We have a form that Nebuchadnezzar does. I'm better than God. I'll make my own choices. I don't want to listen. That's typical pride. We, we all know that. Pride can also come about where we crumble. Where we don't want to do God's way because we're afraid of what he's leading us into. And so we choose our own way by shrinking back. Pride doesn't always mean that I'm going to do my own way and I'm going to override God by going against him in a typical way. We can go against God's will by shrinking back, by saying no to taking a step forward. It doesn't just mean that we run ahead or do our own thing. Both are pride. And so Daniel trusts If we look back a chapter, we see that his three friends trusted too. They had even if faith. That's the kind of trust. Even though Daniel doesn't know how things are going to work out, right? We have the blessing of looking at the whole narrative. We can go to the next chapter and the next chapter. We see how it works out. You don't live your life that way. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And when you're faced with fear, you don't know choosing humility or pride, choosing to humble yourself and trust God where that's going to turn out. Past couple years, um, I've been really trying to learn this. I, I remember being at a um, worship conference. There used to be this worship conference that would happen in Waterloo at UW every year when I was a, um, the first pastor in, in Waterloo, and I would do youth and worship. So I go to this every year. And I remember a speaker being up front talking about the fear of man. Okay, that's, a, that's kind of a more traditional view of just being afraid of people and their opinions. And I realized, man, I really struggle with that. And it's something I constantly struggle with. And so uh, a couple years ago, at least maybe about three years ago, I really started to ask God to work on that in my life. I read some things. I went through some counseling to ask about that, that piece of it. And one of the tools that I picked up in some leadership books and counseling and going to God with this is to imagine the worst case scenario to help me in my faith. So when I'm going to have a difficult conversation with someone, or I have to do something hard, or God is calling me to take a step that, man, if I do this thing, it can blow up in my face. It's it's the right thing, but people aren't going to be happy. And as a leader, I need to be willing to do that. But it's scary, and there's lots of times I've not done that. And so... Imagining with God. I'm not talking about some psychological, you know, vision and vision and grasp that thing. that type of talk and language in the world. It's just it's a counterfeit. You know that, right? Satan can only counterfeit God. That's it. So a lot of the most um, devious uh, spiritual practices in the world, they're just counterfeits for God. When we sit with God and we say, God, help me in this, and we can, you know, say what's the worst that would happen if God goes with me? So what's the worst that can happen? People won't like you. They can persecute you. They can treat you poorly. They can take away an opportunity. Uh, We don't tend to live in a society where there's violence, but there could be violence or death. So what's the worst That's the worst? What can those things not do? When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. I praise God for what he's promised. I trust in God. Why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Nothing. People cannot take my faith. People cannot take my Jesus. People cannot take my future. People cannot take my identity in Jesus. They can't actually touch anything lasting, God. And so, when we have that mindset, and we can humble ourselves to trust God like that, we will walk with Him, having faith that overcomes fear. Secondly, we worship. Worship. Verse 4 says, I praise God for what He has promised. When I worship God, it reminds me that I'm here and He's there. You know, worship isn't what we had today, right? It was great. That was so good to sing. I'm so glad we have a church and worship teams and, and Chrissy to, to lead us in that. It's awesome. I, I'm going to tell you, I was worship leader for many years. She is phenomenally better than I could ever be. So, just thank God for being man of that. So, um, worship is not singing. We can sing worship. Worship is expressing two things. Just two things. It expresses back to God who He is. We seek God for who He is, and we thank Him that we get to be in relationship with Him. We thank Him for what He's doing. So it's, it's first and foremost to God, and then secondly, you know, a response of what He's done in our life. A lot of our worship tends to be more about me centered and what God's doing, but it is towards Him. And when we worship it, we realize that God is overall. And I'm sorry I'm doing this because God is not out there. He's in here. But He's overall. And that we have His Spirit in us while we go through times when we're afraid and we worship Him in that. God, you are greater than this thing. And I thank you that you're with me. Thank you as I recount and remember all the things He's done for me. That's worship. You can journal it. You can speak it. You can write it in poetry. You can sing it. You can speak it out. You can draw it. You can paint it. You can dance it. You can hold it tight in your heart. Worship is expressing God who he is and thank him for what he's done. Anything that falls out of that, that's good. That helps you in your fear. That helps you choose humility over pride. To have faith that overcomes fear, humble yourself to God by choosing worship choosing to trust God. Why, why do you spend time with God? Why do you come to church? Do you have to? No. No, all. No. Well, but we do it because we need others around us. They encourage us. We spend time with God because that's how we get to know Him. So that in the moment that we can't see next, when we're in our comfort and prosperity and God does something we don't understand, we can't see the end of it. We don't shake our fists at Him, turn from Him, and miss what He's doing in our life altogether. But we can have the humility to walk through, not in fear, but with faith. And that's what we get opportunity to do all the time. In a few minutes, we're going to partake in communion together. And that is the remembrance again and again and again of what God has done in sending Jesus. That we might not crumble to fear, but that we might We don't worship God. We don't trust him because we have to. We do it because we need to. And we do it because we want to. We do it because God wants us to choose humility. Do you know what God wants? He doesn't want you to have to take this path of Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want to exile his people. He doesn't want discipline. He doesn't want to, you know, cause someone to have something happen in their life that they have years and years of despair until they will finally bend the knee. Note what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God reached out to him multiple times in normative ways. No discipline, no hardship. Nebuchadnezzar had multiple opportunities, but God loved him so much that he was willing to let him go down a path that everyone watching might deny God, and that he might in the end deny God but he gave him a lowly place that he might look up. God loves you so much, he'll do that with you. Because he did not keep his son. He sacrificed him. God's love is greater than most of our sacrifices. Most of what we hold on to in our pride. God is a nature love, which is a nature of humility. So I'm going to ask Chrissy uh, to come up. And um, she's uh, going to play. I think she might. Unless she's not. That's okay. We don't need you. Topic. Um, so we're going to partake in communion. If you have not uh, grabbed your communion emblems, uh, I invite you to do that in a moment. And so we're going to we're going to uh, open these in a moment together uh, because they're crinkly and rappy, and, um, and we, we considered maybe not you know not doing this, but there's still a number of people sick in the COVID even in our own congregation. So we're going to keep doing this for a little while. Um, these are symbolism but it's much deeper than that. Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he broke it. He took an old symbol and made it new. And he said, This is my body broken for you. He took the wine with meal, the Passover meal that signified what God had done in the past. And he said, We're gonna do something new. God's doing something new. This is a new covenant, this is a new way to and so in a moment I'm going to pray And we're going to partake together. And I'm just going to give you a moment to be quiet. And in that moment, I encourage you to stand before the cross. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, consider your storyline, your arc. Consider the thing that you're facing. Maybe it's not fear today, but there is always a choice to put God first and humble ourselves. And live in the abundant blessings he gives us. It's not necessarily prosperity. You may not get money and blessing and promotions and stuff, but what you get, will get is an abundant life. And Jesus in with you. And when he comes again or when you pass away, that relationship extends until he makes all things new. It's so much better. And so I encourage you to consider that humility that Jesus showed in coming to die for our sake. And may you do the same. So let's open these, blowing we'll the crinkles <laughs> right now. Um, and then we'll take a moment to be quiet. Let's Father, your love is so great, it uh, sometimes is very confusing. I, I have no idea about how I'd respond if I was demokinesic. I would hope that eventually, uh, after less than seven years, or possibly more, I would bend my heart and knee to you. May in this moment we do that. May you not need to love us on that level. May we bring ourselves low that we might look up. God, you are so good and so great and so kind. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the new covenant. Jesus, thank you for your body broken, your blood shed, that we might not need to live in empty and dead religion, as Nebuchadnezzar did, or look to a spiritual human figure to lead us. Instead, we have a great mediator. We have a great high priest. We have a great savior. We have a great sacrifice. you for the cross. Thank you more for the empty grave. Thank you for Jesus' body and blood that we might remember and partake in again and again of your great love that goes to any extremes within your will and your character to rescue us. To call to us, to give us opportunity to choose you. Lord, each day as we have opportunity to choose your way humility of Christ to choose your way over ours. Father, for those who are facing fear, maybe there's people with extreme anxiety today. Others with a a, a scary decision. Others not sure what to do with a relationship. Finances, choice, something at school, something at work. But we seem to be coming up in that again and again and again. Where your people are faced with a choice. And here we see a pagan king Faced the same. Thank you that you call out to us. Father, for those this morning who are not following you, never chosen to follow you, I pray that in this moment and in the weeks to come, there will be a decision made to follow you, a humbling of our hearts to find that you are God above all and that your ways are best. May we choose to trust in you when we're afraid. May we choose to worship you rather than worry. Ask all these things in your powerful. And all of us said, Amen. Thanks so much for gathering this morning. Uh, Next week is Mother's Day. There's Mother's Day panel. It's a wonderful service as we celebrate moms and women in general. And the week after that, Pastor Jake is preaching. I'm away for a week um, vacation. And uh, it's so good to be together. I wish I could be here for those great services. Uh, If you're able to stack the chairs, that would be wonderful. And online, if you've not connected with us and gotten us here,